This is not your average school psychologist podcast. We are your hosts, Rachel Eisenberg, Laura Rutherford, Jana Sanders, and Lisa Thomas. So today we talked to Dr. Peterson. It was great to talk to him about all things related to not being an average school psychologist. I feel like his career as a whole is a really great representation of what it looks like to kind of break out of the box and do things a little bit different and think about things differently. And how to approach it if you if you aren't in that position to begin with to start to expand your role and how to advocate for your role within your building but also more broadly if you already are in that role how do you advocate for a more non-traditional role of a school psychologist to the broader population yeah i think yeah. there's a a story or a couple stories he tells in our in our interview that really just give like a very um realistic picture I think of what it looks like to be in the field which I appreciate I think um not he he balanced like motivation with inspiration but like realism like really well which I think is hard to do so I really enjoy the conversation and a lot of good little nuggets and takeaways hashtagable comments things things that that I personally know I'll take away and use that that will help me and when I feel like I might be in a little bit of a rut. Right. We're going to be re-listening to our own podcast episode, Rachel, like trying to get inspired <laughs> on, a, on a hard Monday. But yes, all in all, it was a great conversation and we hope you enjoyed taking a listen. Joining us today is Dr. Jason Peterson. He is a nationally certified and Pennsylvania certified school psychologist who has been working in the field of school psychology for over 20 years. Dr. Peterson has long been not so average, spearheading school-wide positive behavior support initiatives and multi-tiered systems of support or MTSS initiatives. Along with being an accomplished presenter and author, Dr. Peterson Peterson is a leader in the field of school psychology, serving as a Northeast Delegate Representative to the National Association of School Psychologists, or NASP, Board of Directors from 2019 to 2022, and before that, the Pennsylvania Delegate to NASP from 2014 to 2020. In 2023, Dr. Peterson was named NASP's School Psychologist of the Year. He currently serves as a school psychologist for Derry Township School District. He has developed a comprehensive K-12 blueprint of student services to promote resilience across the district. He has developed he has co-developed alternatives to suspension for middle school students, and he co-leads the creation of a series of professional development sessions on social-emotional learning for staff district-wide. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. It's nice to see both of you. Well, see, although I guess listener will be out there thinking, this is the podcast, but I can see. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much. So we're going to start just kind of with our typical question for a podcast called Not Your Average School Psychologist. So Jason, how are you breaking beyond the barriers of the work traditionally occurring in school psychology? Ah, Jana, that's a great question. Actually, I my whole career has been about moving beyond the traditional role. 
Um, I'd started working for an IU back in the late 90s, an IU 13 here down in Lancaster 11. And, and the role there was mainly consultative uh, and completing reavals. So right out of the gate, it wasn't your traditional test in place kind of model. And, and it was very enjoyable. I liked it a lot. Uh, I was there for several years, three years or so. And uh, what I found was that while I was doing that is that it was really interesting, but I wanted to do something different. So I, I wanted to be more prevention oriented. I wanted to do things that were different. And I did, you know, and testing is a really important part of our job, not to minimize, minimize that by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not the only thing we can do. And so I always wanted to do more. And I know while I have great admiration for teachers, I, 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 I bless them. I don't know how they do what they do every day uh, because I, I, the repetitive nature of that would be more than I can bear. So I, I, I wanted variety in what I did. And so I actively pursued that. So I have always made a point of meeting with principals whenever they get hired to walk in and say, hi, my name is Jason. I'm the school psychologist for your building. Let me share with you what a school psychologist does, lest they think it is simply test and play. So I share with them what it is that I can do for them. And then I ask them, and I, and I mean this sincerely, it's like, what's your vision for the building? And then this is how I can help you to achieve that vision. So it's always been about looking to do something beyond that. The, the blessing and curse often I think of school psychology is that people don't often know what it is we do. They're not 100% sure. They at least know we're supposed to test kids when, and evaluate for special education. They know that part, but that's what they know. They don't know beyond that. So the power in that is that you get an opportunity to educate someone. So I have spent my time making sure that people understood that, yes, that is a part of my job. And I'm more than happy to fulfill that portion of my job. However, that's not going to be the lion's share of my job. So I have spent all the time working with administrators and other teachers to make sure that they understood that school psychologists could do significantly more than just test in place. And as such, that's I'm not viewed as being, oh, this is the person we have to send a child to be tested. And the, you know, that, that's been an active um, piece of what I've been trying to do in terms of breaking beyond those barriers is helping people because they're not 100% sure. I fill in the blanks. Say, this is what I can do. I like uh, these are the things I can do. And, and an analogy I, I coined a couple of years ago that I should trademark or something before I make t-shirts is, is that school psychologists like the smartphones of education. You don't use your smartphone only to make phone calls. That would be a waste of that phone, that device, yeah. right? You have all these apps. Well, that's a school psychologist. We're the smartphones of education. You don't use it. <laughs> Testing is like making a phone call only. We can do all these things. Think of the practice model. All of those things fit into what we can do. Why not do them? That is perfect for a t-shirt. And, <laughs> and it's a, a great way to advocate and, and make it real for people and accessible. Like, this is what we can do. Like, sure, we test and that's a part of our role. But you're so creative in thinking about how to how to communicate and share with everybody what it is we can do that's beyond that traditional assumed role. So so tell us a little bit about how you became a school psychologist and your journey to work as a non-traditional school psychologist. My journey to become school psychologist uh, actually is kind of, it probably starts out very similarly to a lot of school psychologists, which was your, your under, undergraduate psych major. And then in your senior year, you sort of dawns on you that you really can't get a job in psychology with an undergraduate degree in psychology. You're like, oh, great. Now what am I going to do? So I was I was trying to decide. Uh, I knew I knew going to grad school. And so I was thinking I wanted to do a child clinical uh, or possibly school. Wasn't sure, but I was leaning more toward child clinical. 
And so I was started looking around at different programs and and got a job working at a psychiatric center. Um, actually, initially got a job working at Brown University in, in research, which was helpful because that gave gave me more time to sort of figure things out and and, and do that. And then moved down to central Pennsylvania and got a job at a psychiatric center. Well, I, I applied to get a master's in general psychology from American University because I really, before I made the commitment to, because grad school is not cheap, uh, either time or money-wise. It's, it's a lot of work. So I really wanted to be sure that I was choosing what I wanted to do before I committed to that. So I figured the general psych uh, master's would if I went when I went on for my doctorate, because I knew I was going to do a doctorate, I know whatever I was going to move on toward, a lot of the courses would likely transfer. So it would be mm. a, a win in that regard. So again, the degree in itself wasn't necessarily preparing me to do anything specific. It was more of my bridge to get to a, a, a doctorate while I was trying to figure that out. And in the summers there, I was uh, in and off times. I was working at a up in here in Harrisburg at a psychiatric center that actually no longer exists. It was locked inpatient, 26 bed facility. Because I thought that's a really good experience. It's applying my degree. This will be and most of the people who uh, were patients there were chronically mentally ill and, and chronically poor. So schizophrenia, uh, lots of schizophrenia, lots of bipolar. Um, there were just a lot of significant, uh, significant depression, major depression, very, very significant uh, concerns there. And so being that I was the kid on grad school that was only there, you know, in the summers and on breaks, I got all the worst shifts. Uh, so I got night shifts, <laughs> a lot, a lot of night shifts in my, my world there. And one of them was one night we were there and we, we had an admission coming in from like two and a half hours away and three by ambulance. And so I was, you know, the person arrives and it's this woman in her late sixties who is completely dysregulated and you can't understand anything she's saying. She's screaming and carrying on and we're doing the admission process. And what we come to find out is that it's a woman with an intellectual disability mm. and significant speech and language articulation errors. And her, whoever her caregivers were got so frustrated with her, they dumped her at the ER. The ER didn't know what to do with her. So after a couple okay. of hours of having her take up space in the ER and scream and carry on, they said, let's send her to a psychiatric facility. We had a bed. So they sent her to us. So this woman has been hours in, in hospitals, et cetera, by the time she gets to us and has no idea where she is or who any of us are. And she's completely dysregulated. And it's about two 30 in the morning. So she's so physically aggressive that we have to put her in four point restraints in the quiet room. So they do that. When you do that, you have to do 15 minute one-on-one -on -one observations. And as I was the new guy, I got the first round of observations. Naturally. Exactly. <laughs> so there I am middle of the night, dark, you know, this woman's on this mattress at four point restraints, pillow under her head, and she's screaming and thrashing and carrying on. And I'm trying to be soothing and reassuring and, and say, it's okay. This is where you are. It's a safe place, blah, blah, blah. The whole nine yards, mm -hmm. none of being totally ineffective, completely ineffective. She's completely dysregulated. And she's thrashing about, thrashing about so much so that the mattress is shifting. The pillow is slid out from under her head. And, and if she wanted to, she could bang her head on the floor. And I thought, oh gosh. You know, I need to get the, at least the pillow back under her head. And then when the next person arrives, we'll reconfigure this. So that way she's safe and can't accidentally hurt herself. So I reach across to get the pillow to slide it under her head. And as I do that, she winces and turns away. Oh. And it dawns on me. Not only is this situation horrible, but this person's also being physically abused by her caregivers. Yeah. So I put the pillow back under her head and I sit back in the chair. And I think, what am I going to do for this woman? What are we going to do for her? 
where maybe give her some medications, help her to get regulated, all this. But her situation's quality of life is not going to be improved significantly by this hospital stay. But what if somebody worked with her 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20? What if somebody worked with her when she was a child, when she was in school? Would we be sitting here in four-point restraints in the middle of the night? And I thought, no, that's it. I'm going into school psychology because I would like to address the issues before they became issues rather than wait for them to be so entrenched they show up at a hospital setting. And so that's how I decided to become a school psychologist. Uh, and that's sort of, not sort of that approach to preventing the problems before they become problems that are significant as much as possible has been the defining feature of my career. And that's where it all started. Wow. What an incredible story. I wonder where that woman is now. I often think of her. I try not, yeah. I, I haven't, I only very recently started telling the story to people because I, um, out of respect for her, I never wanted her to be an anecdote. Yeah. Uh, but it's, 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 uh, it's yeah if she was an important I wish I knew where she was but she was an important part of who I've become as a professional today it's a beautiful story um so after 20 years in the field so we talked a little bit about how you got into this field in the first place and now you've been in it championing prevention for 20 years what still excites you and fuels your passion for school psychology uh well it's it, it, I, I think, as I said, as I mentioned about this, this, this smartphone analogy, I think, you know, it's, you know, I'm a school psychologist. I absolutely think that we are the secret to solving the problem of education. Mm -hmm. I honestly do, because I think when you, when you look at everybody and, and everybody has their pieces of play in the educational system, and I, I look at our at, at teachers and they have a piece of the puzzle. And then I look at administrators and they have a piece of the puzzle. I look at some coaches and they have pieces of puzzles. But I think about who's putting the puzzle together and actually has stands back and has the skill set to be able to really put all these pieces together. And I think it's the school psychologist. So I'm I'm unabashedly a fan of school <laughs> psychology and think that we really uh, that we really have that chance to really put all the pieces together because we're the only people in that environment to truly have any training within in, in the areas of research and it, mm -hmm. taking research to implementation. That that's really been, that's the thrust of our training is how do you take these problems, analyze them, and then do something about them in a, in a way that makes sense. So I think that that's really, that's what excites me about it. It's every day I think there's a new opportunity. And, and you know, I grew up in Southwestern PA outside of Pittsburgh and, you know, it's kind of a competitive in nature. You know, there's a lot of sports out in that neck of the woods. So competition <laughs> is something that we come by honestly. And I view my career as being a competition against illiteracy, a competition against emotional problems, a competition against this. I would like to say that I think that I've won, but I know I haven't. But I always, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm not that uh, arrogant, but I think that, you know, I, I step up to the plate every day. And it, it excites me to think that, and I'm, it, my competitive nature is that I want to win. I think we can beat this. I think there's a way that we can do this. I haven't, I haven't been able to do it yet. But every day, I think that we can. And that's always, that's what I walk into the, the, every day, thinking we can win today. And if we win for maybe 20 kids, 50 kids, 10 kids, you know, then we've won. Uh, we're winning. We're winning. So I, I'll take those, you know, I'm a baseball fan. I like the, you know, if you're hitting over five, if you hit 500, you're doing phenomenally. And I think we're in school psychology that we do significantly better than that. Our batting average is much higher. So I always think that that's what keeps me excited about it, is that I think we can do better. If you ask anybody I work with in 20 years, I have never once been satisfied with the results that we've gotten. And we've gotten pretty good results. 
but I always think we can do better. I think we can eke out a little bit more growth in the kids. I think we can solidify their skills a little bit more. I think we can make them better, more mentally healthy. I think we can do these things. And I believe that every single day that we have a chance to do that. What an incredible antidote to burnout. I mean, that I'm inspired. Like, I'm like, yes, we can do better. And, and I love how you're saying, like, recognizing the achievements, but it's but still wanting to get beyond the work you've already done. Oh, yeah. No, I, I jokingly say that the best character trait a school psychologist could have is to be malcontent. <laughs> <laughs> what That's a visionary the... way of thinking about it, right? It's just continuing to strive for better oh yeah i think i think and i think that and i feel for people and i know there are lots of people who get who get burned out and get frustrated by this and i think you know one of the gifts i think as a school psychologist you have the chance to step back and look at the big picture i think that when we start looking at when our narrow vision gets too narrow is when we can when we burn out it's because we think about you know there this one kid I was not successful or this situation wasn't successful or these things. But when you step back and you say on the, on balance, where, where are things, how many wins have I had versus losses? Where, how many things have gone better than have not gone well? Um, and I think when you start doing that, you find that <clears throat> you will be more engaged. You'll be energized by that because more often than not, you're making a huge difference. And you, and I know we never hear it. You know, nobody's calling us up and saying, Hey, you know what? You do an amazing job. I should say rarely, rarely right. do you hear it. And one of the things I've been blessed with, especially at Derry Township, is that I've often worked at the elementary and secondary level simultaneously. So I get to see kids that I work with, like when I worked second and third grade, I'd see them in the middle school. Or now that I'm K-1 in the middle school, I'd see those kids. I'd see them when they get to the middle school. So I see where they were mm -hmm. when I first met them and first worked with them and where they are. And that, I think, is is that's also been amazing because... The students you work with, and yeah, I'm sure you've all had that experience where people are like, oh my gosh, this kid will never be functional. Yeah, oh my God, they're just, you're pulling your hair out. You're like, they're so dysregulated, all this stuff, can't get this work, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you see them in like seventh grade, and they're like, hey, Dr. Pearson, what's up? And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, look at you. You know, that was just a part of your development. That was just something you worked through. And with our instruction and support, this is the outcome is that you're a really, you're a great kid and your quality of life and trajectory is much, much better than it had been. And so I, I'd encourage anybody who works at the at the elementary level, go up to the high school or middle school and visit and find out what's going on with those kids. Some probably won't be successes, but most will be. And you'll find that they're doing much better. So it's, it's really been helpful, I think. Awesome. And to be able to to be in that kind of a setting where you can follow the students and you mm -hmm. you are are placed in in opportunities to be able to do that is fantastic and and what a great charge for anybody listening to be able to think to to do that is fantastic mm -hmm. um so so we have this lens of prevention and and this vision for making things better and preventing problems that's kind of defined your career as a school mm -hmm. psychologist so Tell us about a little bit about your focus on MTSS and prevention. Um, you've done a lot with RTI and you've done some with uh, also a lot with school-wide positive behavior support. So tell us a little bit about how you've been able to shift the focus within the school setting to be from a prevention lens for MTSS, for reading, for behavior, SEL. Yeah. So it, it actually, I, I as I said, I, I credit early in my career um, a couple of different things with helping to shift and give me the tools is uh, when I worked for the IU 13, one of the supervisors for the local districts that I worked with 
was Joe Kovaleski. And so it's like, wow. So I get to, you know, we have all these meetings on kids and I'm interacting with Joe all the time. And then he hired, he said he was going to have an opening at his district. Would I be interested in going? And I said, sure. And he said, hey, but he goes this spring, because it wouldn't be starting in the fall. He's like, why don't you go see the Roland Good's going to be at Pat? And why don't you go check out his his, his um, session? He's doing three-day session training on dibbles. I said, sure, great. So I go to that thing and I was like, oh my gosh, this was amazing. And that's when dibbles was only K to three. This tells you how long ago and how old I am. Um, <laughs> and it was amazing. And it was it was phenomenal. I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. And I'd read an article, a couple of different articles by different people. Well, actually, one was Jim DiPerna up at Penn State. He'd written a, an article back in the like 2000, I'm not talking like 2001, 2000, somewhere in that neighborhood on a, a three-tiered model to prevent reading failure. And I read that and had the Dibbles training and then started the new job and went in immediately like, hey, we can do, you know, like we can do this, you know, uh, <laughs> super enthusiastic. And, uh, and that's, yeah. That, and, I, and I basically, to, to, to people who think that MTSS is some sort of unicorn that can't happen, it absolutely can because they were a whole language school district when I started. Mm. When I left, they had an MTSS system at the, at the elementary level. Uh, that first year, I collected Dibbles data pretty much by myself in the fall while I was convincing people that it was a good idea. So I did the rest of my job, the regular job, and any free time I had, I was pulling kids to, to, to do the screenings with. It took three months. <laughs> it's, it's like it's a one-person a one show, and there was a, right. there were a lot of kids. Uh, but it was, yeah, so I did that, got the data collected, and then slowly get started to build that momentum uh, with getting things going. And then the next year, uh, a, a colleague started, Jen Collins, it is the RTI lead for the state. And we were joking because I had all these, I had done all this assessment stuff. And then she came in and said, look, I have all these great interventions because it was great. We've collected all the data. Now what? And then together we were able to really change the lens. Uh, and it was not pretty or easy. I'm not going to say that. It's not for the faint of heart uh, <laughs> to change people's minds, but it, we were able to get convince people that it, that it was the right thing to do for a number of different reasons, because that was the year of No Child Left Behind. Mm -hmm. So schools were getting find embarrassed you know principals names are being put in the newspaper for failing district failing schools all this sort of stuff we said look the way you solve this problem and the way you have students do well in the pssas is not to cram for the pssas it's to start in kindergarten to teach them how to do the skills you want and improve your instruction k through three leading up to the first time they actually take the assessments because if you teach them the skills they need by the time they have to take the assessment they'll be fine so we had so we had to convince them as a long view and that it was more cost effective because administrators that that resonates with them you know this mm -hmm. is much more cost effective it's not cost effective special education is not inexpensive so it's going to cost you a lot more so but if we can put a system in place that rules out the kids who are uh, the coin, coin the term we coined was abt ain't been taught the ones who are more <laughs> instructional casualties or had some environmental factors that we can rule those students out your your outcomes will be better as you truly then have the students who need special education in special education services and everybody else is benefiting from general education isn't that the goal so we really uh spent time working with helping people to understand how the system works and developing it to be more efficient in terms of service delivery because we said you know this is also makes your time more effective and then one of the things that had done was to to make the point is they used uh reading recovery as their main intervention and for those of you, and hopefully all of you are unfamiliar with it because it's not a great intervention. But in case, 
But in case you aren't, <laughs> I will describe it very briefly to you. It's basically a very whole language kind of approach that was one person working with one child for about 25 minutes to 30 minutes. So I convinced one of our reading specialists, and this is something you have to do, is you have to find partners and allies and people who are willing to go along with you. And so she was very interested. Every, every People get into education because they make a difference in kids' lives. So I had to, all you have to do is appeal to that side of them, say, look, I, have, I think I have a way that you could be more effective in doing what you're doing. So she's a reading specialist. And, and so I convinced her to take on a small group of six kids, excuse me, five kids, and use phonological awareness training for reading while she continued to do. So this was not an easy lift. I asked her to do this while she continued to do reading recovery with the other kids. So she was working with six or seven kids through reading recovery and then five in one in a small group that was only 20 minutes to do this pattern group. And then what I did is we did a little action research is I analyzed the outcomes to say, this is what it is if you are working with one child for, for 30 minutes versus a small group of 25 minutes using direct instruction. And what we found is over the same amount of time was those kids in that small group outperformed the other kids three times, three to one. Mm -hmm. So then the pitch to the administration was from a cost benefit, cost benefit point of view, would you rather hire people to work with about six to seven kids per day or 35 to 40 kids per day and have three times the growth and better outcomes? Where would you like to put your money? Right. So it was a relatively, you know, I mean, it was took a little time to get there because of getting all the data organized and blah, 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 describing it. But the, the sales pitch was pretty easy to do at that point because we'd made the argument and made the case and used our own data and used our own students to demonstrate that. Because oftentimes, and it's, I don't, and this is where I say that, you know, sometimes administrators and educators don't necessarily understand the research part is they go, oh, that wasn't done here. So that's not true. That can't be real. Like it's not, it wasn't done with our kids. Well, I'm, Unless your kids are from outer space or something that they're, that they're so wildly, <laughs> yeah, that's how research works. It's designed to be generalizable, uh, and so we we so we did it with our kids to show the outcomes, and that made a huge difference because people then bought into it. And once it got the once we got the reading part up and running, we were then able to make that transfer to behavior, because we're like, look, it's the, generally the same principle, the same model, that we're going to do good core instruction that works for everybody and then we're going to have these more intensive interventions along the way for students for whom the core isn't really working and then people were like oh okay well how then it was just a matter of helping to understand the the the, the uh what are the behavior interventions look like what does the instruction look like and then for that one we pulled more people in to help develop it because we wanted to get more buy-in because unlike reading uh sure you've noticed this is people have really very strange personal opinions about behavior uh, and they stick to them. And so we brought people in who were potentially going to be um, not necessarily on board and had them help us develop it. And so they became part of the solution. And so we were able to do this. And then it was a pretty easy transfer to that. Um, and just so that's, yeah, so that's kind of how began to shift that focus. Uh, then we did, and eventually we branded it as RTI initially, because initially it was not very sexy. As I said, the name was a three-tiered model to prevent reading failure, a three-tiered <laughs> model to prevent behavior failure. And they're like, well, that's kind of clunky. That's not really, <laughs> nobody's buying that if you're selling it, but we're like, so we response intervention and then later MTSF. Wow. Love an acronym, right? Exactly. You can't yes. go wrong when you put it in an acronym. Yeah, the three-tiered model for preventing reading failure was just, I don't know how you make that into an acronym. Just... <laughs> RTI works a lot better. Yeah, much, much better, much better. For anyone not familiar, though I probably should have said this in the very beginning, RTI is response to intervention. Um, um, yes. 
defining our acronyms and our alphabet soup in, in psychology. Um, so, so I'm hearing two major themes from what you shared there, using our expertise to look at data and collect data and have mm -hmm. like local information and data to help with buy-in and also effectiveness, looking at effectiveness, but then also um, being able to gain buy-in by including those who might be on the fence or perhaps not agreeing with you and bringing them in by building in their opinions and and trying to shift the the focus but so so you may have answered this in sharing that but i am curious what other recommendations you may have for practicing school psychologists who may feel like they're in a rut and want to try to shift their role a little bit who haven't necessarily started and in in the way that you began your career but are kind of feeling in that rut yeah, well, no, also I, balancing, I think, the test and place responsibilities mm -hmm. that they have, as you touched on in the beginning, of doing both at the same time. And I think that can mm -hmm. be incredibly difficult as well. Oh, yeah, that it's not easy to do. But it's, it's I, what I would recommend is one of the, the and I always say this is, as school psychologists, we're, we're, um, we're not really good self promoters. Uh, we, we tend to we tend to hang back and we expect that, you know, people, I often joke that if you're waiting for someone to come in and recognize your brilliance while you're sitting in your office, you're going to be old and dusty by the time that happens. You know, it's just not likely that somebody's going to walk first in and go, you know, we need the school psychologist. They know the answer to this. <laughs> Probably not going to happen like that. Not initially. Hopefully you get to that point where that they do start to go, oh, wait, no, we know this is a person we should ask. So being unafraid to have conversations with administrators and lots of administrators and not and being tenacious about it. And it doesn't mean being a pain in the neck. It means that you need to, to say, hey, plant the seed. I, you know, I, I'm doing all this testing here, but I really think we could be using our time more effectively and efficiently. If we looked at this, I'll tell you what, I'll come back sometime. I'll schedule a time. We can talk about this. What do you think? And they're like, oh yeah, generally speaking. So it's really, I'm going to make that appointment and follow up with them and share some of the data. So one of the things we used to do is we used to put up the histograms for all of the benchmark data on, on the wall outside of the office in the hall. So that way everybody walked by it. I would send the, the data to the administration, the building administration, central office administration, all the way up to the superintendent, describing what it was we were doing in a quick nutshell and what that data meant. And it was really just to put it in front of, knowing that full well that they probably maybe looked at it once and deleted the rest. But there was a volume issue, making sure we're getting it out there, is making sure you're pitching the solution. Mm -hmm. No administration is as administrators ever going to be. If you walk in and say, I'm tired of testing all the time, I want to do something else. And they, their first question is the, well, what? You better have an answer. And frankly, it'd be better to walk in not saying I'm tired of testing. It'd be better to walk in saying, you know what, it would be a better use of my time and a more cost effective use of my time because you're, I'm very highly trained, maybe not pushing quite like that, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and these are the things I can do for you that I haven't had a chance to do is, can we figure, can we brainstorm together how I can carve out time in my day, in my week to do this, because this ultimately will pay off more than simply testing and placing. So whether it's saying, you know, has anybody actually looked at our discipline data to see whether we're disproportionate or not? They may, because I'm sure administrators have heard this concept. Mm -hmm. But they and they have, and I will tell you, spoiler alert, you have all the data you need in your district currently. The question is, who knows how to extract it and to be able to look at it to be able to answer these questions? Well, be that person. 
And then you start to be the one that they start to go, oh, now they do say, hey, we have this problem. You know, we'd be good at this. Oh, I think I think Rachel would. I think Jana would be. I think these are the people we need to be going to. So you you start to have those conversations with them and demonstrate what it is you can do to them and come with solutions and come with a couple of solutions for a given problem and come with an idea for what you think. Well, like this is what is that the, the old that old three wish personality test? Is if you had your three wishes, what would it look like? <laughs> think about what you would want your ideal gig to look like and then pitch it. The worst case scenario is they say no. You say, okay, you don't want to do the whole thing. How about this part of it? And then think about what is most palatable to them. You want to look to see who you're asking, who you're talking to, and understand what their love language is and how you communicate that to them. For most administrators, it's, you know, it's the bottom line and how are you using mm -hmm. your time and how, what is the cost effectiveness in this? Fine. Frame it in terms of that. Come up with a cost, cost effectiveness model. I know, um, Nate Bondrabs out of the University of South Florida is going to be having a, a website coming out soon. I can't wait for it. Start, first started talking about it in Mass Baltimore that will allow you to plug in based on your number of kids who are at risk for behavior concerns, the type of intervention you're choosing, the amount of time you have to devote to it. It'll give you, it'll break down a model to show you how long it will take you to serve all those kids and what the cost related to that is. And then, it, you know, so there's a lot of tools that are starting to come available that we didn't have 20 years ago that will help you to figure out how to make these pitches. But if nothing else, think of it as cost benefit. How do I, how do I, do, you can use my time more effectively based on what you're paying me to do X. And X will also prevent, and I know a lot of people get concerned about lawsuits. Well, if you're doing everything else better and you don't end up in special ed, guess what? You don't have as many due processes because people are happier. And this is transparent. This is something we communicate to parents too. It's not like all this is state secrets. Like we have, the MTSS launch codes locked up away from it. Right, right oh, with the red button. <laughs> exactly. No, we want you to know what we're doing and why. Because if you ask any parent to say, what do you want for your kid? They want my kid to do well. Well, this is a system we have. We want to put in place that will prevent issues from becoming problematic. But it also has us keeping a closer eye on every student. So if something goes awry, then we know earlier, whether it's academically or behaviorally. So being willing to to come with those solutions and come with those ideas for how to make it better and pitch it to them. And, and if it involves a purchase, then come in knowing how much the cost would be. You know, one of the things when I worked at uh, Cornwall Lebanon School District is I ha actually had a budget, $400 annually. I never bought assessments with it. I bought intervention materials. I bought things mm -hmm. for other people to accomplish these other things that we wanted to do. So that way it was revenue neutral. It wasn't like they had to allocate additional funds for it. We, I was, I was taking the money rather than buying a book for myself or whatever. I was using it to do this. And some people get hung up on like, well, they should be doing that already. Well, but they're not. So you can help them to find their better angels by showing them that you're willing to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. You know, th those are things. Is this is a team win, and we're all pulling together, and we need to pull together. So, yeah. I like that. It's like telling them the faucet's dripping before the tub overflows. Like, who's going to say, well, I don't want to know that information. Who would, you know, of course they would want to know before it becomes a larger, more expensive issue. Right, right. That's a really good point. So in addition to all of the wonderful things you've already said, um, do you have any other advice for early career school psychologists? So somebody who, you know, just finished internship is in their first, like, five years on the job as a school psychologist any advice yeah a couple things one would be is 
oftentimes, and, and maybe you're lucky, and in a lot of places, people feel a little bit isolated. Mm-hmm. don't feel like they see other school sites. They don't feel like people get them. So you need to find your people, uh, your network. If you're in a small district and there are only two of you, you got to buddy up. But then reach out to the neighboring district and buddy up with them as well. Uh, so that way you're finding people. Join the join the association. Go on the Facebook page. All those things. So you start to get more connected to people. Don't be shy about reaching out to people in the field. You know, my, my you know my contact. I'm out on I'm on Facebook on the Ask Facebook page. You, you know, reach out, talk. Because sometimes it's a matter of having somebody who understands and gets what you're what you're doing day in day out. You need to talk to someone. Um, and so don't don't feel like you're on your own. Don't feel isolated and and don't feel daunted. I mean, I know early on that imposter syndrome can be huge. I was talking to a, a school psych who's about to start her first job this August. And she said uh, the special director had sent her a, uh, a, a, a copy of a vow that had been done. And her first thought was, well, I should forward this on to the school psychologist so that way they can take a look at it and <laughs> decide what to do next. And then she went, oh, wait, I'm the school psychologist. Like, oh, no, <laughs> it's me. <laughs> right. And, you know, and I, I, I remember those days when you're thinking, wait, I am the one who's doing all this evaluation and making recommendations about whether a child needs special education or not, or whether they're eligible or not, and all these things are like, oh, wow. Uh, you know, there's a lot of responsibility there. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's and that's important. And, 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 and but or and you are extremely well trained to do that. And so be, be okay with that. Feel, you know, be confident in that. And if you're not, reach out to other people to, to, to feel more connected. Uh, don't sit in your office all the time. Get out, be seen, be about, eat lunch in the faculty room, at least part of the time. And sometimes faculty rooms can be a little, little dicey. Um, so, but, you know, get out there. So get a chance to, to, so people know you and they get to know you as a person because it's much better to have relationships with people because your job, I often tell our interns, this is, we're often telling people, whether it be teachers, administrators, or parents, things that they don't really want to hear. Right. Uh, and you have mm-hmm. to become good at that and helping them to say, well, yeah, yes. Because no parent really wants to hear, well, my child has a disability. Uh, so you want to be able to do it in a way that they understand what it means. But also it's always forward thinking. It's like, yes, they have a disability and this is what we're going to do. So it's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. And it's, the story is only going to get better because we've recognized the problem. And we know how to address it and deal with it and work with it. So it's thinking about how to frame that story for folks. And, but when you're, if you're known to the, this like faculty administration, then when you have those tough asks that you want to go and ask them to do, if you're asking a teacher to do an intervention that they don't really want to do, they're more likely to do it if they know you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more likely to do it then. For parents, be out of bus duty. Uh, I'm not actually, I'm, we're lucky and we're not, we're not actually assigned duties because, you know, we have a million meetings before and after school. So it's really hard to, to constantly have to replace it. But the days we don't have meetings, we are out. Uh, I go out and help out with bus duty with arrival. I help with bus duty when the kids, so that way the, A, the kids know me, the parents get to see me. I'm helping getting kindergartners into their cars and waving goodbye mm-hmm. and them having a great day. So you become more a part of that fabric and people see you and recognize you as being a part of this community uh, and, and be a help. Uh, you know, if you are if you have a skill, if you can coach, be, become a coach for your district. Do some, so that way people start to, you become part of it and you become important and valuable in that regard. Uh, and it also gives you, it's a better for you. You know, you're getting to do more and different interesting things and meeting new people and interfacing with children differently and their parents differently. Uh, I know years ago, I, I helped, a, I was assistant coaching soccer when my daughter played. And the irony of it is, as I mentioned, I grew up in Southwestern PA, 
Well, that was back in the 70s. Guess what sport was almost non-existent in Western PA in the 70s? That would be soccer. Uh, so I had no idea. I mean, none. But I knew how to wrangle kids. Right. So I was a psychologist. So I said to the coach, I'm like, you tell them, you, you decide what you want to teach them, and I will help to make sure they learn it. And that was how we divided up is because he had the knowledge of soccer. I had the knowledge of children. So it's just a matter of doing that. So it's pitching in to make sure that, you know, they needed to line up on a line. Oh, our kids were always lined up on a line perfectly. And waiting. I love that. Did I you was, win all your games? Uh, sadly, no, we won a lot. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were well was, behaved. They, they, they were they, extremely they were, well behaved. Yeah, when yeah. somebody had a meltdown on the field, I was the one called out to help out. You know? <laughs> but it was like, but it's, it's being, as a young school psychologist, it's make, be out there, make those connections, be visible, be a part of it. Uh, my colleague, Dave Lewinstein is, is awesome. One of the things that he does is he goes down to breakfast duty every day, every day he hangs out with kids at breakfast and just chats with them and is silly with them mm-hmm. and they love them. They love them. And I mean, that's part of it is that you're not just somebody who appears like a ghost and a phantom to say, I've come to take some. Right. You came out of your cave to yes. retreat. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. It's not like you're just coming out to grab somebody, spirit them away do something for a few hours and then return them. You know, it's like, no, they know you're like, Oh, Hey, can I come? Like not today? You know, it's, it's great. So yes, get out there. Don't be afraid. And don't be afraid to talk to administrators. That's the thing is they, every young, particularly early career school psychs, they're always like intimidated by administrators and, and, and nervous. And frankly, I think some veteran school psychologists I know are still intimidated by administrators. You can, don't be afraid to talk to them. You, if you have a concern or question or a good idea, pitch it to them. There's no harm in that. What's the worst thing that will happen? They say no. Oh, well. <laughs> they said no. <laughs> you've yeah. said this before, and I don't know if it's attributable to you or if it came from somewhere, but you've always said be generally useful. And I think that that's the theme here of everything yes. you're saying. Yeah, I, it's not me. It was, it was Robert Bernreiter, uh, okay. was, who was a faculty member at Penn State in, uh, years ago. And actually, he's the one who got school psychologists into the Pennsylvania Code. So you can thank him for your job security. Uh, But he came back to do the lecture that was named for him at Penn State. And he said, the secret to school psychology is to be generally useful. So we're a Swiss army knife. We're (laughs) a smartphone. We are up for bat. Yes. I love it. Yeah, I'm chock full of uh, goofy things like that that I will say. (laughs) I love a t-shirt. I know. I love a metaphor. (laughs) <laughs> Love a metaphor. Very big deal. You were recognized this year as the National School Psychologist of the Year. So what does it mean to you to have received this award? Wow. Um, it's quite, it, it, it is humbling. I will say that it is a humbling honor. Uh, I, I was thrilled to get it. Uh, it is, it was, it's been a lot of fun and it is wonderful to get the recognition, but I, I think of all the school psychologists that I need. And then that's been the one of the great things about having been in ASP leadership as president and, and, and the NASP delegate and all these different things. I've gotten to meet a lot of school psychologists, both in Pennsylvania and across the nation. And what I find is that I go, I, yes, I, I won this award. I was recognized in this award. But I think of all the people that I've met. I'm going, they're doing so much cooler stuff than I am. I, you know. I really wish I could do this. I'm like, wow, that's really awesome. I, oh, why am I, I should, what am I doing with my time? They're doing such a neat stuff that I should be thinking about doing that. Why aren't I doing that? 
So it, it is, it is, it's, it's humbling. It's interesting because my wife is also trained as a school psychologist and, and only half jokingly, and it's truly only half jokingly say, I'm not even the best school psychologist in my house. So, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's something that's really, um, it is humbling and it's been, but it's really neat. And uh, I've tried to, through different ways, just tried to find ways to amplify the field because I really don't view this as um, an award that's about me per se as much as it is everybody that I've had the the great opportunity to work with, uh, whether they be professors I had in grad school, uh, internship supervisors, faculty members I currently interface with at universities, uh, people that other school psychologists that I've had a chance to work with, networks I've been involved in, all of these different things, all those teachers and administration that I've, administrators I've had a chance to work with over the years, of course, in my career. Is this not a a one-person show by any stretch of the imagination. And this is a collective effort. And it's been, I've been lucky that that I've had the opportunity to work with people who've been uh, willing to to listen and, and to do things differently and to take a chance. Uh, but I also think on some level, you know, you have to make your own luck to a degree too, which is a bit of, uh, I can be as tenacious as a terrier. You know, I hang on to stuff. So I really... <laughs> I really try to like not let it go like a dog with a bone. It's like, we, we have to do this. And, and thankfully people have been open to that. Maybe it's just, they're like, fine, we'll try it to shut you up. Uh, but it's, <laughs> that's what it took. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But it's, it's, I, I recognize that this isn't about me as an individual. This is, you know, as school psychologists, you know, we're largely consultative. We're, we're not a lot. There's not a lot that we do is direct provision of service to children per se that, so when you see the students' outcomes, you, I view the role as, as setting up the circumstances for everybody to do their best, whether it be teachers or students or families or administrators. So it's really working to set up that environment so everybody can achieve their best. And yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm happy to have been a part of that. And I, I view this recognition as, um, yeah, as being very humble, humbling. I'm very honored by it, but I view it as a... a, a a collective effort that everybody that I have worked with has brought to this point. It's not necessarily about me. So then building off of that, collectively as a group, as a field, what's an area of need that you see as needing to be addressed? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I, when I think about that question, is 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 it, is it are we talking as a global field? Are we talking as individual practitioners? There's so many different things because I look at the idea of of shortages in in school mm -hmm. psychology. I'll start that just sort of a big picture idea. And when I conceptualize that idea, that issue, I don't think of that as being a how many people are we getting into grad school kind of a thing. I view it as happening much earlier than that. I view it as there's a lot of prongs for that. It's like, how many people are even aware that school psychologists exist? How many students when they're in high school are thinking about college? How many undergrads when they're in their psych programs or education programs are thinking about school psychology as a field? Are there enough training programs, period? How do we, It's in my mind, it's a pipeline issue that starts long before people are getting uh, job positions, looking for job positions as school psychologists. It's all of those elements. So that, that's a big need is to, I think, to raise as a field, which is both individual and collective, is to need is to raise the profile of the field. And part of that is by doing a more non-traditional role. 
So I think the biggest need for probably the field of school psychologist is to um, bust out of the test in place mode so that people recognize that you are, that they're fairly broad skill sets. And when they do that, it becomes more appealing and more valuable within the context of education and more appealing to people to want to go into that field. Um, and, and I know there are people who really love the test in place part of it. And that, that's great. Um, but I think that the vast majority of people want to, that's a part of the, what they want to do, but they want to do more than that, more than that. So I think being open to and recognizing that that's the field needs to, to people need to see the role more broadly. And we have to advocate for ourselves on some level at the end, at, at a local education agency level, as well as a, 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 state level as well as a national level to recognize that there's a lot that we bring to the table um we have a, we have, we have a pretty good skill set so the biggest deal there's a, a line from shakespeare from henry v and i apologize so please indulge for a moment where the uh, the uh, french prince uh is talking to his father because the the ambassador from england is coming with a message and he says to his father he said self-love my liege is not so vile a sin as self-neglecting and I always thought that sums up the field of school psychology right there and what we should be thinking about is that uh, we should be thinking about, we shouldn't be neglecting ourselves, whether within in the context of your, your professional learning, your social emotional functioning, all of that, you shouldn't be neglecting. And you should also be saying to other people, hey, these are the skills I have to bring. And then they'll start to recognize that and value more and you'll get you know, if you if you want those attaboys and the pats on the back, you'll start getting more of those. But you also start to get to do things that are more impactful. Uh, when I look at this, the the MTSS model, the, the the analogy I often use for 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 students is like, look, as a school psychologist, your training, if you think about it, if you do use, just look through the lens of your traditional training, you are trained to gather data on an individual student, analyze that data, and then recommend interventions for that data. And then monitor the progress of those evaluate interventions to see if they're working or not. Right? You're, you do that whole thing within the context of an individual, individual child. All MTS is 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 that on a macro scale. Mm -hmm. It's not an individual child. It's a school building. It's a district. It's the same process, just at that level. So if you recognize that you have these skills that generalize to different ways and think about it, perhaps a touch differently than you had, you'll find that you're not losing your skills. You're not doing something that's beyond your training or out of your scope. Um, so don't don't self-neglect. This is, gives you an opportunity to expand that role and then also your job satisfaction and life satisfaction, which is like, like we're doing the SEL training that you mentioned as part of that. That was something we've kind of always dabbled in. And now it's like, now it's something that we're, we're, we're doing with everybody. And we're actually getting into how they're how working with teachers to do that with kids, embedding it, embedding it into what you do every day as part of your class instruction to develop mentally healthy children. This is how we do it. These are the skills you need to be functional in life, period. And it's not something we're doing on top of or in addition, it's part of what you just do. So we're, that's what we want. So, yeah. So I think that area of, of, of looking beyond uh, just the shortages and being thoughtful about what it is we do and the true impact that we can have is probably the biggest thing. Don't, don't be self-neglecting. I love that. It feels like a hashtag or like a... I don't know. I guess we're just gonna have to make a bunch of T-shirts <laughs> on these things because it is. It does sound. It's fantastic, though. Words of wisdom. Um. So when you're going into the office in 2033, in 10 years, 
what do you hope the field looks like? Hmm. That's a great question. Well, I, I hope that I hope that the field, frankly, looks like um, even better than what my current role and job is. I hope that people will come in and they see the field of school psychology as being the having all this great information where school psychologists are doing action research, where they're, they're talking about interventions, they're making intervention recommendations, they're helping to manage the system to make sure it's running as effectively as possible. Um, I, that's my hope for the field is that it is basically MTSS rules the land. Because <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what you see everywhere. You see because, exactly. You just see that our systems are just working more efficiently and effectively for students. Because this is about capturing, there was an, an analogy, there was an old story when I first started out. I used to do it all the teacher trainings and it was, you know, teachers walking, you're walking on the beach and you see a starfish and you pick the starfish up, it's washed ashore and you take it out and you place it back in the ocean and you've made a difference in that, how that starfish's life. And then the, the rest of the stories, you look down the beach and you see all of these starfish down the beach. Mm -hmm. I hate that story. And I'll tell you that. <laughs> That is the most inefficient way to approach this problem. My take on it is you get yourself a bulldozer. You go down that beach scooping up all of those starfish. You turn that thing and you dump them all back into the ocean to make all of their lives better. That's the analogy I use for MTSS. Is that, yes, we make individual impacts all the time. And I'm not minimizing that whatsoever. But what I'm saying is you can make macro impacts. And that's where I hope the field is in 10 years is that we are at a, at a scale making huge differences for hundreds and thousands of students that we interact with, not just for a handful. That's where I hope to see the field in 10 years. Bulldozing all of our little starfish back into the ocean. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so bulldozers, perhaps included, what is your next big project? Hmm. Next big project. I mean, that's, um, is for right now, it's probably, I'm spending a lot of time in the SEL world right now. And that's the next big thing is really, because one of the things I always try to look at when I think of conceptualize any of these issues or things that we're working on is how do we scale this up so it's workable at any level and at a macro level? How do we take something and make it so that way it's fungible across my district, your district, anywhere it can be moved. So next big project right now is really we've been digging into doing, the way we approach doing SEL training was not to train students to start. We've approached it with how do we, train, help our adults, staff mm -hmm. to develop good SEL skills and really work with them. And then we, after doing that for about a year and a half, then we're working to how do you then now work with, embed this in what you're doing with students on a daily basis. And we put in several artifacts that we're doing. And we've always done, we've done second step for years. So that's always been part of it, but we've added in, we've actually have dedicated time in the day for morning meetings. We have in midday meetings at the middle school and secondary level. And even at our high school level, we have a community period. And I'll say this as just a fun fact, in case anybody wants to know, the way that some of the time was captured at the middle school was the principal was very much on board and literally shaved like two or three minutes off of every period and created another mm -hmm. period that became the morning meeting time. Wow. And no significant instructional impact there whatsoever because you only lost two or three minutes out of a period. So we actually gained a full period that so this actual meeting could take place that was dedicated to time. So, I mean, it's thinking about those things, but we're really looking at trying to determine what the effectiveness is. So the next big step and hope is that we'll actually be able to do, we've done surveys with students and staff uh, pre and post for the last few years while we've been doing all this and all this work with staff. And now we're starting to work with students and more directly and more intentionally. And so now the question is, is 
is it, how effective is it is it being? Are we getting the bang for the buck? So now we're going to start doing some research on that, working with partnering with the university to gather some more data in a systematic way through focus groups and, and, and information like that to say, what, what is it really looking like meaningfully for kids? So the next big project is making sure that this works and that it is, how do we want to put it? That it outlives any of us. So it just becomes part of how you do business because one of the worst things that happens in education is things get started and it becomes somebody's personal passion project. <laughs> and then that person leaves and it goes away. What we're recommending is good teaching, good instruction, period. So the, the next big project as part of this is how do we make sure that this remains a part of the fabric of who this school district is? So that way it's not viewed as being something separate. It's just part of how you do business. So it's really with all of the projects I've engaged in, it's always the trick is, yes, to work with people to get it up and running and share that responsibility and distribute ownership across lots of people so it doesn't contingent on one person and then becomes part of the, the fabric. So that's what we're looking for this, this, this SEL piece is how do we help that to become just a part of how we do business. Uh, and that's that's not a small undertaking is really to get that to be a part of it. That's the baby steps over time that build that system and change the fabric as it's done with reading and, and behavior and, and moving mm -hmm. into SEL. And, and to hear how you've approached that and how you advocate for it is, is inspiring. And it's so important, I think, that you acknowledged that um, we don't want these initiatives and systems to be person dependent, to be like, oh, well, that's Jana's thing. And then Jana leaves and then the thing goes with her because there wasn't the the buy-in and the passion and the system, the structure there independent of the person. And I think that is a that's a really easy trap to fall into. Mm -hmm. So oh, I yeah. think acknowledging that is really important. Yeah, I always jokingly say that if you know if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, <laughs> this shouldn't stop. Right. You know, nothing I'm advocating. I'm not hoping to get hit by a bus. Like right. You, but, I mean, like people can be not. sad at least for a little yeah, bit, right? right? Like right, once sure. you've done your obligatory mourning, then it shouldn't stop. Right. right. Exactly. It, it needs to. It needs to stick around. So and it, and you know if you need to get it into the comprehensive plan, well, think about how you do that. There are a lot. I mean, there. Part of this is understanding how the systems work. Uh, where is the linchpin? So if it's part of your strategic, your comprehensive plan, every district has to have a comprehensive plan. Mm -hmm. If it's part of that, it's a little harder for it to go away. Uh, you, I often say to administrators, uh, we need to look at how we're budgeting for this because uh, you pay for what you value. Mm -hmm. So if you're not allocating any funds for this, whether it be for intervention materials or professional learning or something, something needs to be dedicated, funds need to be dedicated for that. Then you, if you're not, if you're, if you do that, then you're, that's demonstrating that this is something that you consider to be valuable. Yeah. So just thinking about all those different, I'm always looking for the angles, <laughs> which I guess makes me sound like a used car salesman all of a sudden. Um, but it's always thinking about how do you, you work this so that way it becomes part of what's right. And that's why I guess I can sleep with myself being a, a used car salesman is that I know what I'm doing is right. <laughs> right. Like, what do I need to do today to get right. you to drive off the lot in an MTSS model? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I was going to go Machiavelli, but that's a little that's a little dated reference there. But, you know, but it's yeah. So in some ways, the, the ends do justify the means to a bit here. You know, it's because the ends are positive and helpful and great for children. So. But I like the MTSS model. I like that pitch. I might start doing that. There you go. <laughs> Shifting from the smartphone, but still an excellent analogy. 
I mean, both are, are fantastic. Bring your smartphone in your MTSS yeah. model. There we go. With that, you know, with all the app options. <laughs> Absolutely. Then you're limitless. All right. So our last question for you today, and one that we ask all of our guests, is what is one thing you are thinking about that's not so average, and it can be related to school psychology or not. It could be totally random or related. Hmm. Oh, not so. It's funny. I this is an interesting question because uh, I was thinking one of the things. There are a couple of things. I, this is going to be hard for me to answer, so I'll preface that right up front. Part <laughs> of it was, I was there was a book I read that really discussed that I thought was just fascinating. And it's one of the things I think about and I wonder about how it applies to our field. And then also I think is it was discussing the nature of reality at, at a quantum level and whether time is truly linear and moving in a linear fashion or whether it is not. And talking about some of the quantum experiments that have shown that there really isn't a, a the time you can be in two places simultaneously at a quantum level. It's just very fascinating. So, and it really was talking about the perception of the world and the universe and how we engage with, each other and whether this interaction is truly real or not and and whether it's permanent or not or whether it is what it's a function of and i just was so fascinated by that that i was like and it made me think about oh gosh you know what what, what is it we are doing and, and it put it was put everything in the perspective when i started to feel like i had a really bad day yeah i was like well you know at least my head isn't hurting, wondering whether this is truly reality or not, whether what I'm experiencing is legit or not. I mean, you know, it's it's. So I was I was thinking about that. That's something that's not so average that that occasionally keeps me up at night, wondering about the the nature of reality at a quantum level and and how that impacts our world. But then I sort of shifted a little bit and was I know I'm going to be. Uh, we started looking at some of the AI stuff this past spring in terms of its applications in school psychology, and uh, just sort of looking at you know, efficiencies that can be gained to that, but also being careful about the pitfalls there. You know, it reminds me of that line from Jurassic Park is, you know, your scientists were so concerned about whether they could do the thing or not. They didn't bother to see whether they should do it mm -hmm. or not. And so I just wonder about that and think about it as, as, as school psychologists, as I see that things are popping up there. Uh, there's edu AI, which is like teacher paid teacher only using AI kind of a thing. I just worry about some of that kind of stuff coming along. I wonder about those things. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I yeah, those are kind of the things that are just kind of rattling around in my head, you know, um, at times. Yeah. And it's in terms of school psychology, I'm, I, yeah, I spend time just thinking about, you know, a little bit in terms of how we can leverage all of the tools that we have to be more effective and more efficient. So thinking about, I'm a big fan of Excel uh, and there are a number of things that I have automated that I typically would do by hand or whatever in Excel. It's just, it's taking those things and learning how to be more effective and efficient with them and just saying, how can we do this even better? Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, so I think about those things and yeah. Uh, the balance, it sounds like the balance of the benefits of technology and making your job more efficient and effective and then the pitfalls of having a technology reliant society and technology that makes decisions yeah yeah and, but yeah, maybe in, in an alternate universe maybe they've got it all figured out <laughs> <It could be. laughs> but all the more reason for for school psychologists out there to be doing everything that you've suggested today that 
pushing for the the non-traditional pieces of our role um you know who knows what's going to come out of ai or or any other kind of automated processes but the things that I don't know that, I don't know. I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know that anybody knows, but I think what AI probably can't capture is the interpersonal pieces, the getting to know people, the the buy-in and the the emotional pieces of things that we can bring to yeah. our roles. Well, and I think it ties back. I had a professor tell me once that people won't work for someone they don't like. And I've... Mm-hmm. And it kind of ties back to all of those like non-tangible things that make you a successful school psychologist that a machine, it's hard to like a machine other than for its utility. Right. And let's be honest. I mean, if you're clinging to your whisk kit desperately as you're identifying your role and your, your identity as a school psychologist, how long before AI is administering the whisk? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I've never clung to my whisk kit as defining who I was because I always figured at some point that would, you know, that could become obsolete. Uh, it's everything else that I bring to the table and that we bring to the table as school psychologists that make us unique and valuable. Uh, it's the integration of everything that we've learned and know and all these pieces of data. I mean, sometimes I get accused of being cold because I like data too much, I guess. Uh, but it's and, and and all these ways. But it's yeah, it's 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 an important piece of it. And I think that it's all of that integration that you're able to do, that higher level thinking that you're able to do there, and and to bring together. That's that's going to be the leverage. And and hopefully, hopefully AI won't uh, take all that away from us. But. <laughs> But I, I think that still there's, there's you know, having just we, when looking at it, it's, it is definitely fallible uh, for sure. And you know, that's something to be mindful of. But I think that, yeah, I, I wonder about that and, and, and what the efficiencies are that we can gain there and how we can make uh, aspects of the job more effective, more efficient, et cetera. So. Absolutely. Well, I, I hope everybody listening now feels um, more energized and, and, supported with the ideas that you shared to be able to drive off in their MTSS model and be that smartphone and advocate for the role of school psychology. This has been such an inspiring discussion. And um, I know I've, every time I talk with you, Jason, I always feel like there's another takeaway that inspires me to do better and to push more in a more non-traditional role and be more creative. Um, And I hope that everybody listening has been able to take something away the same way. Um, so thank you. Um, Jana, anything to add or any other last question or Jason, anything to add? Wonderful conversation. Thank you for sharing your stories. I think anytime you can put like a, a real life experience to a message, it helps um, make it more tangible and understandable. And I just love, I, I'm a huge fan of listening to people's stories. So I appreciate all the, the details that you shared and I feel equally inspired, Rachel. Well, thank you both. It's very kind of you. I, you know, it's, 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 this was a wonderful opportunity and I, I hope that uh, that I hope to listen to many more other school psychologists do this podcast. I am looking forward to hearing that uh, because I, I agree. I think there's so much that we can learn from each other. And as I said, this, I, I I listen to other school psychs and I think all the time, what am I doing with my time? I you know, clearly these people are doing amazing work. I'd love to hear more about that, you know. And and you know, I think about you know we're talking about taking these different steps, and it's you know there's a saying I heard years ago. Um, 
I was actually in a movie. It's the movie Roxanne with Steve Martin. And the line was, why would you sip from the teacup when you can drink from the river? And I always thought about that's how you look at this. Rather than take these very small little dainty things, we should just be embracing it. You know, and that's what I think about the school uh, field of school psychology is that like, we should be just drinking from that river every day and just really like nourishing ourselves and going for it every day. So, you know, that's how I, I view it. That's a great message to leave everyone with drink from that river or the bulldozer and right all. drink from the river while you're bulldozing, bulldozing the, the starfish the starfish back into the ocean <laughs> up to bat home run every time we well, need if that is the catchphrase for this lord really knows what people think this conversation is <laughs> <laughs> well thank you we really appreciate it thank you for being on our first episode of the not your average school psychologist podcast and we're excited um to have you all join us next time. Thank you for joining us today. The Not Your Average School Psychologist podcast is brought to you by the Center for Effective Schools. To learn more about the Center for Effective Schools, go to our website at www.devereux.org.